What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. into today's episode i just wanted to give a a quick trigger warning because um this case involves crimes including rape and sexual assault and we'll be discussing some of that so i just wanted to give a trigger warning before getting into the episode and if that's not your thing then if you don't want to listen to that we'll see you in the next one and we totally understand On January 17th, 1989, Timothy Wilson Spencer was convicted for the rape, burglary, and murder of Dr. Susan Hellams. Spencer had already been convicted three months prior for another murder, and three months before that for one more. Okay, serial killer. This was the third murder conviction for a man that became known as the South Side Strangler, who wreaked havoc in Richmond, Virginia in the late 1980s. Oh, no. He was also the first person in U.S. history to be convicted based on DNA evidence. Nice. Okay. So before I go any more into this case, I want to give a huge shout out to a podcast called Southern Nightmare. They covered this case in full depth and they talked to detectives, prosecutors, friends and families of the victims, and they just like went really in depth to a lot of this. So I'll cover a lot of the information, but if you want more and different perspectives on all of this and kind of how it unfolded, which I always find so interesting hearing from like the detectives that worked on it and them talking about how it all unfolded. Um, I highly recommend you listen to the podcast. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, And it's a really good podcast. Awesome. And also, this case was suggested by Alexis, so thank you, Alexis, for the suggestion. Yeah, thank you. So, on the morning of September 19th, 1987, a man named Arnold Ellis was coming home from a night out when he noticed that there was a car parked on the street in front of his house. So this was a little bit weird because that car wasn't normally there, but it was really late at night. He was like, whatever, it's probably just somebody that parked their car there didn't think much of it when he got up six hours later the car was still sitting outside and now the engine was running but no one was inside so at that point he called the police to report an abandoned vehicle and when the first officer arrived to investigate what this car was he determined that it belonged to 35 year old debbie dudley davis (laughs) wow I know. I really like her name. Debbie Dudley Davis. I feel like it's so cool. Lots of D's. Yeah. So Debbie lived in a um, apartment in Westover Hills in Richmond, Virginia. And this was just a street over from Ellis's house where her car was found. So the officer went over to her apartment to talk to her. I'm assuming that her um, either her license or her registration inside the car had her address. And that's how they figured out who it belonged to and then like where she lived. So he went over to her apartment, but no one answered the door. While he was there knocking on the door, a neighbor of hers was worried that she wasn't answering the door. So she gave the officer the spare set of keys that she had so he could go inside and check on Debbie. Okay. The neighbor, you know, hadn't seen her that day and was kind of just like, why isn't she answering? Right. When the officer walked inside the the apartment, he found a horrifying scene in Debbie's bedroom. Mm -hmm. Debbie was lying face down on her bed, completely naked. Her right arm was tied behind her back and her left arm was tied beneath her. She had been raped and strangled to death. My God. Inside of the apartment, they found that the kitchen window was open and there was a rocking chair propped underneath it, indicating to officers that the person who had come in, broken in, and killed Debbie had used that to get back out of the apartment. Right. So Debbie Davis was an only child, but she was really close with her, hus- with her cousin, Judy Fisk, growing up. Debbie graduated from Brookville High School in 1970, after which she got married, but that marriage didn't last very long. She was really young, and by the early 1980s, she was divorced, and she moved back to Richmond, Virginia to be closer to her cousin, because that was, like, basically her sibling. Yeah. 
she moved into an apartment just a block and a half away from her cousin, her cousin's husband, and their kids. Debbie began working at Style Weekly, which is an, an entertainment magazine, and she loved her job. She was really into it. She really enjoyed what she was doing, and it was a lot better than all of the other jobs she had worked previously that had kind of just been a job for a job. Right. This was something she actually enjoyed doing. Mm-hmm. She was known to be a quiet, kind woman who loved to read mystery novels and watch movies, and she also worked at a bookstore in her free time. She just enjoyed doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And her cousin remembers how infectious her laugh was and how much Debbie loved life. Hmm. On the night of September 18th, Debbie wasn't feeling the best. So she had gone to the hospital earlier that week for abdominal pain, and they told her that she needed to get her gallbladder removed. So Hmm. she was in the process of, you know, setting that up to happen. And she just wasn't feeling well on the night of September 18th. So around 730 that night, her cousin's husband, Eric, brought their kids over to say hi and check on her. But Debbie was afraid that she was sick and didn't want to get them sick. So they basically stayed outside and kind of like said hi through the window and checked on her. And then they went home. Investigators believe that by that point, the killer was hiding in the closet inside of Debbie's apartment. Oh, my God. Because of the timeline of her, like, of when she was killed. Right. And it's believed that he entered her apartment through that kitchen window. Dang. So police had an idea of what happened to Debbie that night, that somebody broke in, was hiding in her closet, and then attacked her, and then left through the window. Right. But other than that, they had, didn't have a lot to go on. They searched her house thoroughly, and the only thing that they found was semen stains. Mm. But they couldn't do much with that at this point in time. Right. The publisher at Style Magazine, where Debbie worked, put up a $10,000 reward for any information leading to her killer, but that didn't lead anywhere. Of course, at first, investigators were looking into Debbie's life. Is there some reason that she would have been murdered? Um, And they believed that it was someone who knew her because of the way that they were able to, like, sneak in her house and hide in the closet. Yeah. But there was nothing in her life that indicated she would be a victim like this, and nobody in her life was even remotely a suspect. Okay. And then another took another murder took place, and that sentiment that she was targeted because of who she was or something about her life quickly changed. Okay. About two weeks after Debbie's murder, Dr. Susan Hellams was at home on West 31st Street on the evening of October 2nd. So Susan was a resident in neurosurgery at the Medical College of Virginia, and she had a bright future ahead of her. Wow. Yeah. When it comes to hair care, there's no one size fits all. I myself struggle with volume, and since having my twins a year ago, postpartum hair loss. I love when I can feel confident about my hair, and with pros, you can too. Pros makes custom hair care that's effective because it's personal. Using natural ingredients with proven results, Pros customizes every product in your routine from shampoo to supplements. So first, Pros starts by asking about your hair goals, which for me was wanting to get my curls more defined and to reduce frizz. Their in-depth consultation also asks about you as a person. So Pros asked me things that I didn't expect, like where I live and what type of things I'm surrounded by in my environment. And I never thought that that could affect hair, but thinking about it now, it makes a lot of sense. With my answers, they put together a pre-shampoo mask, a shampoo and conditioner, and a curl cream. And the combination of the products has been amazing for my hair. I love that. As a carbon-neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They are also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon-neutral. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the key to achieving all your hair goals this year. 
Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash inhuman. That's pros.com slash inhuman for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off your first order. She often worked late hours, so her when her husband, Marcel, returned home late that night, he was surprised to see that her car was in the driveway because he expected her to be working late. Yeah. But he figured she just got off early, so she, he went into the house. He thought he heard Susan moving around upstairs, mm. and he didn't want to wake her up, so he quietly went and took a shower, and then he headed into their bedroom. And when he got into their bedroom, he felt that something was off. In the moonlight coming through the window, Marcel noticed that there were bright crimson spots on the bedding. And then he saw Susan lying on the floor of their bedroom closet. Oh my gosh. She was partially inside the closet and partially outside of it. She was partially clothed and was not breathing. She had a leather belt wrapped around her neck. And at that point, Marcel immediately called police. So he heard somebody moving around up there? Mm Mm-hmm. Gosh. So on that earlier that evening, Susan had assisted on a spinal neck surgery that finished around 6.30 p.m. And she then went to see another patient who was under the care of Dr. Colleen Kraft, who was a pediatric resident at the Children's Hospital. So Dr. Kraft... They saw this patient together, and she was one of the last people to see Susan alive. So after seeing this patient, they walked out to the parking garage, and they parted ways. And it seemed like everything was normal to Dr. Kraft. Right. Susan stopped by her house to leave a note for Marcel saying she was going out to dinner with a friend. So she went out to that dinner, and they left the restaurant around 10 p.m., And then she spent the next 45 minutes at her friend's hotel just chatting and hanging out. And then she headed home. So she was home by 11 p.m. that night. And Marcel found her at 1.45 a.m. When police arrived, they found the horrific scene. So Susan's hands had been tied behind her back with an extension cord and a necktie. And another belt was tied around her ankles, and then a red leather belt was tied around her neck with a black rope around that to kind of act as like a garrote. But all of these things, or almost all these things that were used to tie her up, were like from the closet, from the home. Right. Her skirt was hiked up, and she was still wearing her socks and one shoe. The killer had raped Susan and then strangled her to death. This house where Susan lived was just under a mile away from Debbie's apartment. Oh my gosh. And this was just two weeks later. Yeah. So police were able to determine that the killer had cut out a portion of the second story bedroom window screen and that's how he got into the house. So this window was actually usually left open by Susan because her cat liked getting the fresh air so she would leave the window open. Mm -hmm. So all you had to do was cut out the screen and you could get inside. Yeah. So the killer had climbed onto the back balcony by climbing onto the porch roof from a fence. So basically went onto the fence, onto the porch roof, got up to the back balcony, and then was able to cut through the screen of the window. Wow. And investigators believed that he was hiding in her closet when she returned home that night. So probably the same. I mean, it sounds like they connected the cases pretty quickly, but... They did. The same Same exact MO. MO. Yeah. Right. But And in this case, they actually did have a little bit more evidence. So there were some things missing from the home, including Susan's violin and her diamond ring. They also found a smear of a footprint inside the bedroom. And okay. this footprint, like the, the uh, material or like the residue of it was from the roofing tar that covered the porch balcony. Okay. So that's kind of how they figured out that's where the killer stepped. Right. And then there was another tar smudge on Susan's calf. Oh, okay. On the balcony was an open tub of Vaseline, believed to be used in the rape. And then there was also a three-foot white rope on the balcony. So police believed that the killer was in a rush to leave because 
all of this stuff was left behind, nothing was wiped up, and her not being fully in the closet. Right. And so it's believed that the sound that Marcel heard when he got home was potentially the killer leaving the bedroom. That's what I was afraid of, or the beginning stages of whatever happened. Yeah. No, Mm -hmm. I think it's believed that by that point, Susan was already dead. Yeah. And he was finishing whatever he was doing and then he heard marcel come in and left because he assumed that she lived alone right and so he left quickly out of the window and that's why there was some evidence left behind damn dr susan helens attended the university of virginia and graduated from the university of richmond and she became a medical student at the medical college of virginia where she studied neurosurgery which is just crazy she worked as the chief resident at the American Hospital of Paris in 1983 and 1984, and that's wow. where she met her husband, Marcel. No, that's so sweet. By 1987, she was back in Virginia and was in her fifth year of residency, and she, th- on the Southern Nightmare podcast, they had a lot of people talk about, um, like, people who knew her and people who worked with her, and they were saying how everybody would always be excited when she was on call or when she was like on the roster because they just loved working with her no that breaks my heart though i know and she is still remembered in the medical community there's a conference room at the vcu health system neurosurgical center named after her with like a plaque with her picture wow that's amazing and those who worked with her remember how dedicated she was to her patients and just how amazing of a doctor she was and they were like she was going to be an amazing amazing neurosurgeon. Yeah. So after Susan's death, the police and the Richmond community pretty quickly realized that there was a serial killer on the loose. So by this point, hardware stores began selling out of like locks and other protection devices yeah. and residents were terrified. I bet. But unfortunately, police didn't have any leads. There was there were no witness accounts of suspects and the actual physical evidence, while there was some, it was limited and what they could do with it, especially at the time, was very limited. Okay. There was one man who confessed to killing Susan. So this guy worked at, <laughs> at the same hospital as her and he went and told police that he'd killed her, but he was pretty quickly ruled out because his story didn't match. There was no indication that he was the killer. I do not understand that. Like, why and it doesn't even sound like he was like interrogated into confessing like no not he just at all was like oh, i guess i did it like yeah how do you come up with that buddy no it's it was like he wanted his 15 minutes of fame mm-hmm. which how are you famous by confessing to a murder i don't know but infamous i mean sometimes famous fame yeah but they had nothing they started looking into if there was any connection between the victims They found that Susan had recently written a check at the bookstore where Debbie worked in her free time. And Debbie was the one who had endorsed that check. But that connection didn't really mean anything because it was just like Debbie was the one who would endorse checks at that bookstore. And Susan happened to purchase something and write a check. So it wasn't like it was they were connected really other than just living in the same area. At this point, the FBI created a profile of the killer. So they said that he was a white man who was smart, that he lived alone or with a domineering female, that he was likely combative toward women and had difficulty dating and holding down a job, and it was possible that he had a criminal record. They believe that he was stalking the victims before killing them. Absolutely. And... That's why he, like, knew that they lived alone. And even though Susan didn't technically live alone, her and her husband worked very long, late, strong, hours. strange hours. Yeah. So it's possible that he just never saw the husband's car there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, they also found that the items taken from the scene, or they believed that the items that were taken from the scenes were, like, kind of taken as trophies, not as a burglary or for any okay. you know reason to like make money off of it or right. anything like the golden state killer <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and then just over a month later a third victim was killed in a similar way mm. on the evening of november 21st 1987 15 year old diane cho was at home in her apartment her parents arrived home from work late that night and her mom gave her a haircut And then around midnight, her parents went to bed 
and when they went to bed, they heard her in her bedroom working on a homework assignment. At some time after midnight, Diane opened her window and knocked on the outside of the apartment building she lived in to get her friend's attention. So her friend Jenny lived in the same building, and they would sometimes do this to chat with each other late at night. And they had become very close because they were very similar. Um, And she Jenny recalled that evening hearing Diane knock on the wall and heard her kind of saying like, hey, come chat. But Jenny was so sick in bed that she mm-hmm. couldn't get up to open the window. So she just had to like ignore it. Mm-hmm. And they ended up not talking that night. I love how 80s that is. I know, right? <laughs> like knock on the window. Like, hey, I'm outside. Instead of like, can't text anyone or yeah, exactly. you know, really even call anyone. Because you have like yeah. one line in your house. <laughs> yeah, just hanging out with your friend by talking yeah. through the window. Yeah. So the next morning, Diane's parents left the house for work, and this was a Sunday morning, so it wasn't abnormal that Diane was still sleeping. They left for work pretty early in the morning, so it wasn't anything weird that her door was closed. They worked that day until 2 p.m., and then they closed their store early to head to a church service. So they were planning to pick up Diane and her younger brother, 12-year-old Roman, at home before heading to the church service. And so before they left, as they were closing up the store, they called the house phone to make sure that the kids would be ready. So both times that they called um, Roman, Diane's younger brother, was the one who picked up the phone. And both times he told them Diane's still sleeping. And their mom was like, "Okay, go wake her up because she needs to be ready for church. But Roman was like, she can get really angry if if I wake her up. Like, I don't want to go do that. You can do that when you get home. So he didn't go into her room. He just assumed she was sleeping. Around 3 p.m., the Cho's arrived home, and they found that Diane's door was still closed, assuming she was still sleeping. So Diane's mom opened the door to go wake her up, and that's when she found the worst thing you could ever see. Well, I'm glad... To some extent, I am glad that, like, Roman wasn't the one to go in there and find her, but... Yeah, especially because he was home alone. Like, what would he have done, you know? Yeah. So, Diane had rope wrapped around her neck, and her face was purple, and she was not breathing. Oh, my God. So, Diane's mom had actually started, like, going over to her and, like, trying to untie the rope to save her, because that's a natural response. Of course, of course. But her husband, Diane's dad, knew that Diane was not alive anymore so he actually stopped her saying hey this might be evidence we shouldn't touch anything yeah that's smart but so hard the window to diane's bedroom was wide open so roman was the one that called 911 and the operator asked if he could administer cpr because that's something that happens when you talk to them and he said no diane is gone Diane had been raped and murdered at some point after midnight while her parents and brother were asleep in their bedrooms. Her family, along with Jenny, who had heard the knock on the the building, heard nothing that night. Wow. Which sounds very surprising, but investigators believe what happened is that as soon as the intruder came into the bedroom, he quickly took control of Diane and gagged her mouth with duct tape right away so she couldn't make a sound. Yeah. And it's believed that he was inside of her bedroom when she got home that night. Mm -hmm. And then when she was finally alone, he came out and then quickly took control over her and likely threatened to kill her and her family if she made any noise. So that kind of does make sense why they didn't hear anything. He was clearly methodical and knew what he was doing. Like the, um, what do they call it? The element of surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you react to that? Like, you're just, you don't know. Yeah. Your first instinct might not be to scream. Right. I was recently telling my husband about microdosing, which can get you to that zone where you feel just right and your mind and body are just at peace. My husband has a stressful job and a really long commute home from work, so he's always looking for a good way to unwind when he gets home in the evenings. And when I introduced him to microdose gummies, he was so eager and excited to try them. And that's why I'm so excited that our show is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. 
Microdose gummies deliver the perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Sometimes I'll take half a microdose gummy during the day to help me stay centered and focused as I get everything done on my to-do list. They also help me relax at night after a hectic day so that I can be more present in the moment instead of worrying about what I need to do tomorrow. That's awesome. The best part is microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, you can go to microdose.com and use code INHUMAN to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com and use code INHUMAN. So there were a few differences between Diane's murder and the previous two that had happened. So Diane lived about four to five miles away from the other murders. Okay. She was not living home alone. Like she wasn't a single woman living in her home, which, right. you know, uh, Susan Helms wasn't. But again, like we said, the killer probably the perception she was. was that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she, Diane fit a different victim profile. So she was a Korean teenager and the mm. other two victims were white middle-aged women. Yeah. There was one other thing that was different about the scene at Diane's bedroom. And that was that she had an infinity sign painted in pink nail polish on her leg. But couldn't she have done that? She could have. Um, it's very possible. But what was missing from the bedroom, the only thing missing, was the, the bottle polish. of pink nail polish. Oh. So I think that's why they believe that he did it. He did it. Okay. But despite these couple of differences, there were just too many similarities to ignore. Yeah. So police pretty quickly connected Diane's murder to the murders of Debbie and Susan. Yeah. So at this point, they were like, there is a serial killer on the loose. So police found um, at the scene, like the others, semen. At Diane's scene, they also found um, a hair that was recovered that was later tested and believed to be from someone of African descent. But there's just no way to say for sure that that hair belonged to a killer because hair can come from anywhere. Yeah. School, like the yeah. bus, any, I mean, literally anywhere. Exactly. So a classmate of Diane's named Desi Fieros, a couple days after the murder, told a friend that she knew something about the murder. So that friend then told a teacher and that teacher went with Desi to talk to the police. Now, apparently Desi's mom had basically said, stay out of it. Don't say anything. Don't make yourself a victim, which like I get as, as like a mother, you would be like, just, I don't want to get involved in this. Yeah. But also if she's saying she knows something, it's like, you kind of have a responsibility at that point to yeah. come, you know, come forward at least anonymously and with, say something. Yeah, with a tip at least. Yeah. But so she didn't come forward right away, but she told a friend. That friend told their teacher, and then the teacher was like, "Okay, I will come with you and talk to the police." Okay. So the Southern Nightmare podcast was actually the first time that Desi did an interview with the media to tell her story. Oh wow. And she said that on the night of the murder, she was around the apartment building because I think she lived in that apartment building as well. Okay. And she saw a black man wearing a blue collared shirt, khaki pants, and boots. And she had never seen him in the area before. Okay. And it was around midnight. Hmm. So Desi was terrified and that's why she hadn't told anybody right away. Yeah. And unfortunately... It doesn't seem like the police did anything else to follow up with her or her statement. What? Why? Yeah. Uh, who knows? Because she was a kid? Probably. Mm. Oh, so frustrating. frustrating. Yeah. Diane Cho emigrated with her family to the United States from South Korea in 1984. In July 1987, they moved to Richmond, Virginia for her family to start a new corner convenience store. And Diane, who was 15 at the time, took on a lot of responsibilities in the family. So she was the best English speaker. So she was the one that took care of all, all the bills. She registered herself and her brother for school. She did a lot wow. of housework and just like taking care of the house and stuff. And then also yeah. helped out at the family store. 
She was a strong, ambitious young girl who wanted to be a doctor when she grew up. And her family and friends were like, she would have been an incredible doctor. Yeah. A week after Diane's murder, the serial killer struck again. No. So this was on the evening of the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend in 1987. And on that Sunday evening, a woman named Audrey pulled into her neighborhood in the suburbs of Arlington, Virginia, which is about 100 miles away from Richmond. So I was going to say, that's quite a yeah distance. <laughs> yeah. So while the other Diane's murder was like four to five miles away from where Debbie and Susan's murders took place. Right. It was still in the same vicinity. This was in a totally different city. Yeah. So when Audrey pulled into her neighborhood her neighborhood she noticed that her neighbor's house was dark and that the window to the bedroom was open and this was strange because it was a cold evening it was late november yeah and she also had never seen that window open before so she was like that's kind of weird yeah early the next morning audrey got up to drive her husband to the airport and she noticed that the window was still open Mm. so this window was in the house of sue tucker sue was a 44 year old magazine editor and she lived alone at the time because her husband had recently taken a job as a photography teacher in his home country of wales and sue was preparing to move to wales with her husband very soon oh man so because she lived alone her husband wasn't here and she actually didn't have a car Audrey and her husband would often like take Sue grocery shopping and help her out to get around town and stuff like that. Yeah. So during the day on Monday, Audrey called Sue several times because they typically went to the grocery store that evening. Yeah. Sue never picked up. And then by Monday evening, Audrey still hadn't heard from Sue and noticed that the house was still dark and the window was still open. So she was like, okay. There's something wrong Something here. wrong, yeah. So she actually had a spare key to Sue's house. So no. she went along with another neighbor to go check on check Sue. Check things and out, yeah. I'm Ugh. sure at that point they're just thinking, like, what if she had a heart attack? Or what if she, like, fell and can't get up? You know, they're not yeah. thinking she was murdered. They're thinking, like, what if By she hurt killer. herself? Right. Yeah. So they went to open the front door, but the chain lock was on the door, so they couldn't actually get in. So they went around the back and um, Audrey was able to climb up onto the back balcony and found that the back door was unlocked. She said that she took two steps inside the house and immediately felt like something was wrong. She smelled an odd odor, so she turned around and called the police. Oh, good. I'm glad she did that. When the police arrived, they went in through the front door and they found at the bottom of the stairs uh, Sue's pocketbook. And the contents were, like, scattered everywhere. Then as they proceeded into the house, they found Sue in her bedroom. She was lying across her bed, face down, completely naked. She had white ropes tied around her body. Her hands were tied behind her back. And there was a rope connected to her neck from where her hands were tied behind her back. Right. She was partially covered with a dark blue sleeping bag. Sue's body was severely decomposed. Because she had been there for several days. Right. So the coroner couldn't put an exact time on when she was murdered, but her husband, Reg, knew that it had to have been the Friday prior because they had a call set up for Friday night and Sue never answered. And then he was calling her all weekend and she never picked up. So it had been two days at at least two full days since she was murdered. I was thinking, like, it had been a week and he hadn't checked, like, he hadn't called to do a wellness check or anything. I was like, yeah, wow. No. And <laughs> he bad, actually but... said that by Sunday and still he not hearing gonna... from her, he was calling, like, every 15 minutes, like, starting to freak out. But he's in a different country. It's like, yeah, you have to and time zone out... and exactly. everything. So. Gosh. How helpless he must have felt. I know. And hearing him talk about it, I'm sure that, like, the next day he would have called the neighbor or called the police or done something. Yeah, yeah. So when investigators looked over the scene, they found that the killer had entered through a window in the basement laundry room. So not even the open window? Mm Mm-mm. 
what? I think that they thought that maybe that's how he left, potentially, okay. or just he opened it to get, like, fresh air. Who knows? Yeah. There were two pieces of white rope among the shattered glass under the window, and there were no fingerprints, but police were able to determine that he had wiped down the washing machine, likely to get rid of either finger or shoe prints. Okay. There was one other piece of evidence that was found in a tree in the field behind Sue's house, and this was actually found by her neighbor, Audrey, the next day while she was out walking her dog. Okay. And this was like a washcloth that was snagged on the tree. So they believe that that's how he escaped. Okay. In the dining room, they found a half-eaten orange and a serrated knife sitting out on the table, but no cutting board or plate was in sight. Mm -hmm. And that was unusual because Sue was known for being very tidy. And so people who knew her were like, she wouldn't have cut the orange on the table. So they believed that the killer had done that. But unfortunately, by this point, it was too deteriorated to get anything from like a bite mark from it or anything like that. Right. 44-year-old Sue Tucker was um, a magazine editor for the U.S. Department of Agriculture and she had been married for 18 years to a photographer, Reg, who, like I said, had recently taken a job as a photography teacher in Wales. And she was preparing to move to Wales with her husband. They had, you know, they were excited for this new part of their life. She was excited to go to Wales and, you know, go with him to his new job. And it was going to be happening pretty soon. Yeah. She was a gentle, kind soul. And her husband described her as just amazing. He also talked about how she was an artist and she loved to sketch and draw whenever she could. So early investigators were kind of thinking that this could be related to the killings in Richmond. But Sue's murder was also very similar to the murder of another woman from three years earlier. Oh. So Detective Joe Horgus was the one who kind of first started thinking about this connection. He was the main detective on the case, and he was really early on, like, this This connection feels right. Okay. So in January 1984, 32-year-old Carolyn Hom hadn't shown up for work in two days. So her secretary became worried and contacted her best friend to check on her. Her best friend, Darla Henry at first was just thinking that she was busy because she was preparing to travel to Puerto Rico in just a few days. So she went to Carolyn's home in Arlington, Virginia, and there she found her car sitting out front. But as soon as she noticed that her front door was cracked open and there was snow in the front hallway, Darla knew there was something wrong. Yeah. So there was a neighbor that was outside his house and she was like, hey, can you come help me look around? Something's wrong. So they went inside. They found Carolyn's purse emptied out at the bottom of the stairs. Hmm. In her bathroom was her workout clothes from the two nights prior. And then discarded downstairs was her bathrobe. They then continued into the garage and there they found Carolyn's body. She was lying face down on the garage floor and she had been strangled to death with a rope that had been cut from a rug that was rolled up in the garage. The laundry room window in the garage was open and that's how the attacker got into the house. It's unclear why the front door was open, but my thought was maybe she tried to escape and like open the front door. Right. And then he got her and he never went back and closed it. Yeah. So Carolyn Ham was an incredible person, as all these women were, but she was one of the f- 10 women who were in the first class of women admitted to Princeton, which if you wow. didn't know, is a very prestigious university yeah, in the U.S. Very, very prestigious. And while she was at Princeton, she put together and captained their first women's crew team. Oh, wow. She graduated from Princeton in 1983 And she went on to get a master's degree from Cornell, focusing on architectural history, urban development, and preservation planning. And then she went on to study law at Duke. So she was very smart. Yeah. 
During her time at Duke, she began working at the National Trust for Historic Preservation and at the National Register for Historic Places. So she was very interested in art history and preservation and things like that. Okay. She was working as an attorney in historic preservation law. In 1982, she took a year sabbatical from her law firm to work as the acting head of the University of Vermont's Historic Preservation Graduate Program. And as you can tell, I'm sure, she was extremely successful already Mm -hmm. at 32 years old, had accomplished all of this, and she had a long, incredible career ahead of her. And the best part was she loved what she did. She was extremely fascinated with architecture and art history, so she was just this was like her what she was meant to do yeah in her free time carolyn liked to do things like pottery photography she was also very active and loved to go jogging and horseback riding and skiing and she is remembered by her sister as quote intelligent vivacious and an eloquent world traveler Hmm. which i think is just so cool yeah so after carolyn hom was murdered investigators had very little to go on but they did have one tip so the man that the neighbor that had helped darla search the house had kind of become a suspect early on mostly because they didn't have much else to go on so it was kind of like oh he might be a suspect yeah so he was brought in and interviewed and then after that his sister went to police and said hey i actually know somebody who might be a real suspect So she said that she knew Carolyn and that Carolyn had recently complained that a man from the neighborhood named David Vasquez had been peeping on her while she was sunbathing. Mm. So this sister told police that she had actually seen Vasquez walking in front of Carolyn's house two nights before she was found. And then another witness came forward and said that he had also seen Vasquez outside of Carolyn's house the morning she was found. Oh, So David Vasquez became a suspect very quickly, but there was an issue with him as a suspect. His brain function was at the level of a 10-year-old, but he was 37 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. Also, at the time of Carolyn's murder, he had left that neighborhood in Arlington and was living with his mother 25 miles away. Okay. And he couldn't drive and didn't have a car, and his mother said, She didn't take him anywhere near Arlington in the days surrounding Carolyn's murder. So how would he have gotten to Arlington the night Carolyn was murdered? But when detectives questioned Vasquez, they started it off by lying to him and telling him that his fingerprints were found at the scene, which unfortunately is not illegal. They can lie during uh, interrogations. Right. They then continued to basically tell him the details of the murder, and then he ended up relaying them back as a quote-unquote confession and the southern nightmare podcast goes more into this but basically it was the kind of thing where they were like how did you kill him her and he was like i stabbed her and they were like no you didn't you you strangled her oh my gosh come on yeah So later, um, Arlington County attorney Helen Fahey would say, quote, the confession was not a good confession in part because of who David David was, the type of person he was. So there were a lot of problems with this confession, but Vasquez Mm -hmm. also didn't have the best lawyer. So his lawyer had a doctor inject Vasquez with the truth serum sodium amytal, which has since been debunked and is actually believed to produce false memories yeah (laughs) but they injected him with this trust serum or truth serum Mm -hmm. and vasquez still admitted to the crime while being under this truth serum right so because of this and then also his quote-unquote confession his lawyer advised him to enter an alford plea which if you didn't know this basically means that he's saying he's not guilty, but acknowledges that there's enough evidence against him to get a conviction. And Vasquez, not knowing any better, did that and was sentenced to 35 years in prison for the murder of Carolyn Hom. Wow. So he was in prison, and three years later, when Sue Tucker was murdered and Detective Joe Horgus began examining the evidence (laughs) and finding a similarity, 
he was like, wait a minute. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't think this guy actually did it. Oh, well, that's good. I'm so glad that that realization was, was met. Right. So the cases were nearly identical down to the way the victims were tied with a rope around their legs connected to their neck. Yeah. So at first, David Vasquez became a suspect in Sue's murder because he was like, this guy got convicted of killing Carolyn. It's very similar. Maybe he killed Sue. But there was only one problem. He was in prison. He was in prison. Yeah. So it's kind of impossible for that to actually happen. (laughs) Yeah. And when Detective Horgus interviewed him in prison, he wasn't convicted convinced one bit that Vasquez had killed Sue or Carolyn for that matter. Well, that's good because, you know, unless he has the power to teleport. (laughs) Yeah. Like not much you can do. No. So Detective Horgus continued to investigate Vasquez's involvement in both murders. Okay. Unfortunately, there was a DNA sample from Carolyn's crime scene, but it was way too degraded to test. And there was no other real evidence pointing either to or away from Vasquez as being involved in her murder right and then the other weird thing is that the witnesses both witnesses held true to their initial statements that they had seen vasquez it's kind of weird that they did that i mean the first witness that even brought him to police's attention is the one whose brother was being considered a suspect so it's kind of like did she actually see that or was she just trying to protect her brother it's unknown exactly. yeah but they did hold true to their initial statements when horgus interviewed them in 1987 okay so vasquez was in jail for the murder of carolyn hom and we'll talk about that a little bit more later but back to the investigation into sue's murder vasquez wasn't a viable suspect and they had no real leads And then they kind of started realizing that this was likely connected to the murders of Debbie, Susan, and Diane that had happened earlier that year. Okay. The media dubbed this serial killer as the Southside Strangler, and he was completely unknown. But by the end of December 1987, police knew that the murders were all connected, committed by the same person, Mm -hmm. but they didn't know who this person was. The investigation stalled. Right. Around the same time, Detective Horgus was also beginning to question whether the Southside Strangler was the same man who had been committing serial rapes in the same area around that time. So there were several similarities, including that the rapist would break into victims' homes through a window and would use rope to tie them up. So Horgus began talking to the victims of these attacks, and he basically determined that some of these attacks were in 1983, so before Carolyn Hom was even murdered. And Horgus was like realizing that as time went on, this rapist was able to refine his methods. And as time went on, they resembled the murders more and more. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and that, of course, escalation, which almost yep. always happens, but also yep. another similarity to the Golden State Killer. Yeah. Very <laughs> weird. Very similar. So in one of these attacks that happened in Arlington, a woman was woken up early one morning by a black man wearing a ski mask and threatening her with a knife. He tied her up and spent three hours torturing her. And then he pulled out a long rope, and it's believed that his intention was to kill her. But thankfully, her upstairs neighbor heard crying and came to investigate, and the attacker ran away. Oh my gosh. But when Horgus learned all of this, he believed that it was the same man and that he was attempting to murder her. Oh, my gosh. At the end of 1987, with no real suspects or leads, the task force began preparing to meet with the FBI. And on December 29th, Detective Horgus met with two agents who worked in the very newly developed behavioral science unit to develop a new profile of the killer now that they knew more. Okay. So they looked all over all the information about the rapes and the murders that had taken place in Arlington and Richmond between 1983 and 1987. And it became clear to them that this was committed all by the same man. Wow. And it was known that the rapist was a black man because there were witness accounts. Mm-hmm. And this differed from the initial profile of the killer that said it was a white man. Right. But it is important to remember that this was very early on. 
in the existence of the behavioral science unit and profiling happening. And at this point, there were not many known black serial killers. Yeah. I mean, even now, there's not that many. (laughs) Yeah. And so the other thing was that all of the victims were white. So they believed a white man would kill white victims and a black man would kill black victims, which obviously is not. That is so stupid. I'm so sorry to say that. But that is not rational logic whatsoever. No. But that was one of the reasons that led them to initially say this was a white man because, like, why would they? It was the eighties. Like, yeah, exactly. They interracial dating was illegal until like in some states until like the nineties. So yeah, so (laughs) they just they they thought it was a white man, but now at this point they're like, okay, clearly it's a black man, right? They said that this man lived in the Arlington, Virginia area, and they believed that he was in prison between 1984 and 1987 because there were no reported rapes or murders that matched what had happened right so it was possible that he had been paroled in 1987 and that's when he began attacking again there's a lead to Mm -hmm. look into so they began looking into anybody who matched the profile that had recently been paroled in the area So they were looking for someone who went to prison after Carolyn Hom was murdered in 1984 and let out before Debbie Davis was murdered in 1987. Okay. So Detective Horgus was asking all of the officers from the Arlington PD if they could think of any suspects that would match this profile, especially people living in the historically African-American neighborhood called Green Valley. And Horgus himself had actually worked in Green Valley for years, and he caught several robbers and other petty criminals over the years in Green Valley, so he knew the area well and knew a lot of the people there. And one day, when he was patrolling the neighborhood, a name randomly came into his mind. He has no clue why this name came into his mind, Hmm. but he remembered a boy that he arrested when the boy was 13 or 14 years old in the mid-70s. And this boy was one of several kids who had broken into someone's home. So Horgus had been the one that arrested them, had gotten his fingerprints, and he just, for some reason, remembered this kid. But all he could remember was that his name was Timmy. He couldn't remember anything else. Oh, wow. Dang. (laughs) Yeah. So he kept thinking on this, but then was also going through records of anybody that matched the description or anything that had a record. And... When he was doing that, he finally realized that this boy was Timmy Spencer. Hmm. And when they ran through his record, they found that Timothy Wilson Spencer was arrested for burglary in Alabama in 1984 and that he was paroled to a halfway house in 1987. Weird. And this halfway house was in Richmond, Virginia. Damn. Now, that's good police work right there. (laughs) Yes, very good police work. So they went to the halfway house, and there they found even more damning evidence. So they Mm -hmm. found that Spencer had signed himself out of the house on the days of every single murder in Richmond (gasps) that had taken place. Because, you know, to leave a halfway house, you have to sign yourself out. Yeah. So he had done that. And when Sue Tucker was murdered in Arlington... He had gotten permission to go to Arlington that weekend to spend Thanksgiving weekend with his family. So he was in the halfway house in Alabama? No, he, it was in Richmond. Oh, okay, okay. I was yeah. like, wow, he's traveling really far for yeah, these no, murders. No, no, no. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So he gotcha, was in gotcha, Richmond gotcha. where three of the murders took place and then right. the Arlington murder. Lined he up. He went to visit his family during that weekend in Arlington and his mother lived about a mile away from Sue's home. Holy shit. Yeah. So after this, police began surveilling Spencer because they had to have enough to arrest him. Yeah. Especially in a case like this. Like once they're arrested, you can only hold him for so long before Mm -hmm. you charge them. So they had to have enough to charge him with. Right. At one point when he was being surveilled, he was pulled over while driving a borrowed car, which was a violation of his parole. Mm -hmm. But Horgus and the task force told the officer to let him go with a warning. Yeah, we need something better than that. Exactly. (laughs) And um, after that, plainclothes officers continued tailing him. And that's when they saw him do something really weird. Again, couldn't arrest him on it. But (laughs) he got out of his car into the snow, crawled under the car, and began searching the undercarriage as if 
he was looking for like a tracking device. Mm-hmm. So it just seems very like suspicious that he would do that. He got paranoid. And they actually said that there was a tracking device on his car, but he didn't find it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Damn. So they surveilled him for the next about week, but they didn't have anything to arrest him on. And so the police department was like, we can't keep paying for this right. if we're not getting anywhere. So the surveillance uh, will stop. Damn. And Detective Horgus and then prosecutor, then prosecutor Helen Fahey were terrified that he was going to strike again. So they decided to make the decision to take everything they had against Spencer and go to a grand jury. Oh, shit. Because they were like, we're not going to get anything else if we can't surveil him. Yeah. So we got it. Now or never. Yeah. On January 20th, 1988. The grand jury indicted Timothy Spencer. Wow. Later that afternoon, Arlington County Police, along with Detective Horgus and many others, went to the halfway house, waited for him to return home from work, and arrested 25-year-old Timothy Spencer for the rape and murder of Sue Tucker. That's so young. Gosh. 25. That's crazy. Now, when they arrested him, they actually only told him that he was being arrested for burglary, which was technically true. That was part of the indictment. Right. But they didn't want to tell him too much more because they wanted to try to get information out of him. Yeah. So they searched his room in the halfway house, and they didn't find anything directly linking him to the murders, but they did find several objects that violated his parole. So at least now they had something to, like, hold him on. Right. And then they found a large, roughly drawn infinity sign on the bottom of the mattress. Mm, Very okay. eerily similar to the one drawn on Diane Diane's leg. Yep. And he, when they asked him about it, he was like, I didn't do that. But it's just too weird. What are the odds that that would be there and right. at a crime scene? Exactly. So after being arrested, uh, Spencer actually agreed to give a sample of his blood because, again, he thought he was just being charged with robbery. Mm-hmm. And he was like, why would you need blood for a robbery crime? And they said, oh, oftentimes people cut themselves. Robbers cut themselves. And he said, oh, well, I didn't cut myself. So he happily gave his blood because he was like, I didn't cut myself. So I couldn't have yeah, been connected to it. But now they have a sample his of his DNA, blood. Right. Yeah. Through the interrogation of him, he refused to admit anything. Mm -hmm. But investigators were hopeful that they could link him to the crime scenes with a very new technology at the time called DNA fingerprinting. Oh. So there's a company called Life Codes, and they had successfully used DNA fingerprinting to convict somebody, um, get a conviction in a rape and a murder trial in the U.K., So they were wanting to bring this to the U.S. and use it on bigger cases, so they offered to help. So police sent the semen samples from two of the crime scenes to life codes, and they quickly confirmed that they had been killed by the same man. Right. And they sent the samples from the other crime scenes, including Carolyn Homs, which unfortunately was too degraded. Um, but they sent everything they had. And then in late January, Detective Horgus flew out to Life Codes himself to hand deliver the samples of Timothy Spencer's blood. Now, this was a very early in this technology, took a really long time. Right. But on Wednesday, March 16th, 1988, the DNA test results came back from Life Codes. Timothy Spencer's DNA matched the DNA from the Sue Tucker murder scene and matched the DNA from the scenes of Debbie Davis and Susan Helms. Wow. Okay. And his DNA matched two other earlier rape cases. <gasps> wow. They said that the odds of someone else having the same markers was one in 135 million. Okay. So definitely him. <laughs> yeah. Damn. There was no question that Timothy Spencer was the Southside Strangler. Dang. So his first trial began in Arlington on July 11th, and this was the trial for the murder of Sue Tucker. So they had this DNA evidence, and it seemed like a strong case, but they had to convince the jury of the accuracy of this new science because this had never been really seen or used before. So not only did they have to prove that or show that it matched, but they had to 
make the jury realize how accurate and important this is. Yeah. There was really no other evidence against Spencer to connect him to the crimes. So they really just had to to rely on the, the DNA technology. But thankfully, the prosecutors were basically able to get every single expert in the field. And like, they did a really good job of putting the case together. After a six-day trial and five hours of deliberation, Timothy Spencer was found guilty for the rape and murder of Sue Tucker. He was sentenced to death. Damn. After this, he faced trial in Richmond twice for the murder of Debbie, or he faced trial in Richmond for the murder of Debbie Davis. Again, DNA evidence placed him at the scene. And on September 22nd, he was convicted of Debbie's murder and sentenced to death. Damn. In January 1989, he went to trial again in Richmond for the rape and murder of Susan Helms. Again, DNA evidence linked him to the scene. He was once again convicted and sentenced to death. Unfortunately, they weren't able to link him to Diane Cho's murder with DNA evidence because I think just the sample wasn't good enough or they just weren't able to get a good enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But prosecutors focused on showing how Spencer's MO that had been proven that he did in these other cases was the exact same as what happened to Diane. Yeah. And the jury did convict him of her murder as well. Wow. And gave him a death sentence, which was surprising to them because... They had nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Essentially. Besides, like, an infinity mark and the similar MO. Yeah. So while he maintained his innocence through every single trial, Timothy Spencer had four death sentences for four murders that he committed. Damn. Of course, he appealed all of his convictions, but there was a solid case against him. His appeals were denied. And on April 27th, 1994, Timothy Wilson Spencer was executed by electric chair. Oh, my God. What a terrible way to go. Yeah, I will give you a warning. If you listen to the podcast, the last episode does talk about somebody who was there. So just a warning for that one. Yeah, I don't want to know that. That's awful. So after his convictions, police were looking into comparing his DNA to samples from other open and also closed cases, Mm -hmm. specifically looking at the murder of Carolyn Hom, because Detective Horgus and other investigators were convinced that he had killed Carolyn. Right. So the sample was degraded, so they couldn't link him through that or and they couldn't rule out him or David Vasquez, who was currently in prison for her Mm -hmm. murder. So through the reinvestigation, they found how unfair Vasquez's interrogation was. They realized his legal representation really wasn't adequate. Yeah. And they also pointed out how his low IQ and mental capacity would have never allowed him to commit Carolyn's murder because of how well planned and executed it was. Like, he just wouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah. So they approached the Arlington prosecutor, Helen Fahey, to see what could be done to free David Vasquez. And there was a lack of physical evidence, so there was nothing conclusive to point to either Vasquez or Spencer. Everything was pretty much circumstantial. But the FBI began working to put together a profile to prove that Carolyn's murder fit Spencer's MO. So with that, they put together this really extensive profile and showed that Carolyn's murder would have fit into Spencer's geographical and chronological timeline and had an identical MO to the other murders he was convicted of. Okay. In October 1988, Fahey submitted a request to the Virginia governor with all of this information. And finally, with that, David Vasquez, who had served five years in prison, was released and fully pardoned. He was released in January 1989, and he became the first American to be exonerated on the basis of exculpatory DNA evidence because... DNA is what linked Spencer to the other four murders that showed his M.O. And then that matched the M.O. of the person who killed Carolyn. David was granted $117,000 as compensation for the five years that he served in prison. (laughs) Okay. I know. (laughs) 
when he got out, he said he didn't hold any grudges against anyone and basically said they just made a mistake, which is just like, it breaks my heart. It, that is heartbreaking, especially knowing that he has the mental capacity of a 10-year-old. A like, it's they just took advantage of him even after mm-hmm. the fact because he they knew that he wouldn't do anything to yeah. push back. Yeah. And even if he had done it, he shouldn't have been in a prison. He should have been in, like, a facility that could yeah take care of him. Because they will, like, single you out and... Oh, and he was treated really badly in I was going to say, yeah. He was probably made to do horrific things. You know, be people's little errand boys and, you know, yeah. whatever else. God forbid. But that's just a hundred and, what'd you say, $18,000? $17,000. Yeah, that ain't, that ain't back covering then. shit. Yeah. Yeah. But him and his family were just so glad that he was out of prison. His mother really suffered when he went to prison because she had actually lost a daughter um, as a child. Mm. And so and then David was all she had. And then he went to prison. So she really struggled. Um, So they were just so happy when he got out. And he lived until 2013 when he passed away at the age of 66. Mm. Well, I hope he had a full life and I hope he had everything he could have ever wanted in life. Yeah, and I think he did. It seems like he had a lot of people who loved him surrounding him, and yeah. hopefully that led to him being able to live his best life. Good. Debbie Dudley Davis, Dr. Susan Helms, Diane Cho, Sue Tucker, and Carolyn Homs' lives were all taken by a monster. Mm-hmm. And they were all absolutely incredible women. Like, hearing about them, reading I about know. them. Successful, just... smart... Yeah, they just had such bright futures ahead of them. Mm -hmm. And they're remembered to this day. And, you know, while the person who killed them had to serve and pay for what he did, a lot of their families just feel like they weren't able ever able to get closure, which is completely understandable and just so heartbreaking. Yeah. But they are remembered as the beautiful souls that they were. And that is the story of the Southside Strangler, the Richmond Strangler, Timothy Wilson Spencer, a horrific serial killer who thankfully was caught for his crimes, but just absolutely awful. And I can't believe that somebody could do that. I know. And also incredible that they were able to use early DNA technology to make him because if it weren't for that, he wouldn't have gotten convicted because they really had nothing else. Yeah, they really didn't. He was very methodical and conniving and strategic. And he, yeah, he knew what he was doing, which is wild because he was so young. I know. And he was probably really smart, which is unfortunate that. that, That's what always happens. I swear. Mm -hmm. It's either one extreme or the other for criminals, you know, and. Yeah. It's sad to see them use that potential for horrible, evil things. Yeah. Yeah, so that is the end of today's story. Um, like I said, I'll be sharing the link to that podcast in the show notes. And if you want to hear more from detectives and the families and things like that, I highly recommend listening to it. It's really well done and super interesting to hear the detectives' perspectives and then also just to hear the families talk about their loved ones the victims is um is really neat so highly recommend you listen to that um but thank you guys so much for listening thank you for being here we will have a new episode on thursday and until then keep it human bye guys Mm -hmm.